Hello, this is Vidush Nahantaraja, host of the Indie Football Podcast, and welcome to the Independent Premium Events Podcast. In this series, you'll get the chance to listen back to all of the live events that we put on here at the Indie for our premium subscribers. If you aren't subscribed already, click the link in the description and sign up today for access to loads of exclusive articles, including in-depth analysis from people like me, long reads, opinion pieces, and much, much more. As a subscriber, you'll also be able to attend events like the one you're about to hear for free and get involved with them as well. So make sure you click the link in the description of this podcast and subscribe to Independent Premium. Hello and welcome to the Indie Football Podcast Live. The Premier League returns this week and so does this podcast after a three-month hiatus due to the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm your host, Vidushina Hantaraja, and today I'm joined by Chief Football Writer of The Independent, Miguel Delaney, Senior Football Correspondent, Melissa Reddy, and our columnist, Tony Evans. We also have a very, very special guest for you here tonight um, for this season Re preview, I think that'd be the right way to call it. Um, a special, special welcome to former Manchester United, Tottenham, and Fulham striker Dimitar Berbatov. Dimitar, guys, hello. Uh, it's just good to have you all back. Um, you'll hear from our guests shortly. Um, first of all, I suppose just to tell you a bit about what we're doing here, this week's episode is in association with the Betfair Exchange, which offers a different way to back, lay a bet, or even set your own odds as well. Betfair is also offering the sports book where you can place multiples and acres. And they've also got a celebratory, um, I suppose, returning offer for you as well, where you can place a £10 bet on the sports book and get a free £5 bet on multiples, um, a offer that you can get once a day as well. And you can click on the full terms and conditions in our descriptor. If you're watching this live with us on YouTube or listening to this as a podcast, thank you very much for joining us. We're also lucky to have on this very same recording, our subscribers for Independent Premium as well. And those of you who have joined us from Independent Premium, firstly, welcome. And secondly, if you've got any questions that you'd like to ask us throughout, then please use the Q&A um, facility on Zoom and I'll do my best to kind of tally through those and interrupt our guests as they're making brilliant points to ask them your questions. Um, so yeah, if you want to be a premium subscriber in the future, then all you need to do is to kind of click on, again, the link that we'll have in the descriptor that kind of gives you a head start on everyone else, I suppose, for these kind of live events. And it just costs £3 for your first three months as well. But now, on to the good stuff. And after nearly 100 days of absence, Premier League is finally back. The self-anointed best league in the world returns after having been stopped in its tracks, much like everything else due to the coronavirus pandemic. There's been a lot of debate, a lot of discussion, a lot of argument, a lot of counter-argument. But one thing now we know for certain is that football returns to our screen on Wednesday night, starting off with Aston Villa against Sheffield United. Miguel Delaney, I'm going to throw it immediately to you. You were across all this from the very start. And I suppose in the most open-ended question I could ask you, how did we get to this point? Uh, with a lot of painstaking negotiation, uh, and a lot of hours on Zoom, actually, from the Premier League. I, but to be fair, as long as that has been, it is remarkable how quickly the situation has changed in the last month. And that's probably, I think, due to one major development. And that was the day at the height of the period when there was a huge difference between basically the main four, or sorry, the upper 14 clubs and the bottom six, who some had jokingly referred to as Project Sabotage. Um, but the FA announced at one of those meetings, basically, that this season would be settled in in, uh, in terms of results, that it wouldn't be null and void, that there would be relegation and that there, there would be an outcome. And that, I think, immediately undercut a lot of the politics because it meant that the bottom six clubs weren't pulling in the same direction. Because, I mean, they did have legitimate concerns. I mean, I suppose we'll go into it in, in the discussion, but... I mean, there are all sorts of debate about whether this is a real season, whether it's even the same sort of game without fans. But even still, I think everyone's aware of the need to finish the season, both from, from a financial perspective, from an integrity perspective. And from then, really, as well, we, it must be added, given the situation we're in, uh, the improving coronavirus situation, as well as the steps that the Premier League and football in general showed they were taking, which they pretty much convinced the players that this is a, as secure an environment as you're going to get. 
uh, through that, that that's how we're here. And it's, it feels very different to a month ago when it did seem like the whole Premier League season was in their genuine threat. Yeah, as you said, we'll talk about more, I suppose, about the, the politics of the, the top and bottom of the leagues. But it seems that right now things are a lot more amicable. Yeah, completely. Um, and, and it really goes back to that day about a month ago. And since then, they've all been pulling in the same direction. And some of the clubs who were said to be most, um, how to put this, uh, maybe offering the, the greatest level of debate about the season suddenly got a, a lot quieter. Uh, and, and realised the benefit for everyone. And there were, of course, more pressing concerns there because, I mean, if this break continued indefinitely, I, I think someone from a Premier League club, and actually one of the Bundesliga guys put it, said it to me as well, football, you know, for, for all its social value, it's a product. And if any business stops producing its product, then with the income starts coming in. And that was the existential threat to a lot of clubs and the game itself. And that meant this was always, I suppose, some way, some way likely. But, but it is remarkable now how just it's all happen- it feels like it's all happening so smoothly there, there have been of course um now now we're into kind of low single figures in terms of positive tests for premier league players and staff i mean that, that's that's still an issue well the game feels it can comfortably work around that to provide the players with a safe environment and now the show goes on dimitar i'm gonna throw it to you straight away firstly welcome to the show um what have you made of the process and how the football authorities have conducted themselves over the last couple of months? Well, actually, I'm happy that the Premier League is back. Uh, I hope they have learned and watched the Bundesliga because I try to watch uh, as many games as possible, see how they can handle the break and the whole situation that uh, we're going through. Uh, and in the end, I'm really curious to see how they're going to handle the games uh, because it's still... Uh, problematic situation in my point of view. Uh, still, from an ex-football player perspective, let me tell you, some of the players still concerned. That's for sure, 100%. You're going out there, you want to you wanna play, you're going to put a brave face, but you need a side, you're going to have all these questions going on in, uh, in your mind. You know, what is going to happen if suddenly, you know, I start coughing back home after the game or stuff like this. And that can affect your performance. But overall, how the games are going to be handled, we're going to see uh, when they start. With regards to, I suppose, the, the football authorities, you know, FAs across the world, they're not exactly re- renowned for making good decisions or smart decisions. But do you think they've done as much as they can to ensure the player safety and things like that? Definitely. I mean, it's easy to sit back uh, from outside and just criticise and say they didn't do their job properly or they can do better. Of course, probably everybody can do better. You know, but in the end, this is the unfamiliar territory situation that we've never been before. And it's, in my opinion, really difficult to know how to handle a situation like this. And we all need to support each other, no matter what. And I know how difficult it must be to take the right decision at this moment, because there are always going to be someone who is not happy with, uh, with the decision that uh, been taken. But the reality of the situation is that uh, we need to stick together, support as much as possible. And as I said, I'm curious how everything will be handled now when the Premier League starts. Melissa, you've been involved with talking to, I suppose, the, the you know people on the shop floor, really, you know, the players, the managers and the people around the return, the ones who are going out there to, to put the show back on the road. What's the kind of messaging been like from them? It feels like, as we said with Miguel, things have been a lot more amicable now. But, you know, what have your kind of conversations been like with regards to Wednesday's restart? I think Miguel made the great point about when self-interest dissipated because the Premier League made it very clear there was going to be no null and void and relegation would be intact. So from a sort of political standpoint, that was a very big step. But in terms of the players and the stakeholders, managers, uh, club support staff, the real change came when the Bundesliga endeavoured to return. Once the Bundesliga made it clear that they'd be the first major league to come back and you would see their training protocols, how they phased it in. Uh, you could watch clips on you know, YouTube, on the club's Twitter accounts, on Sky a lot of the times as well of how things were progressing. You'd get reports back about their testing procedure and that sort of made elite football real again and it showed especially when the return actually materialized that yes it's different it's behind closed doors and you know the atmosphere there is no atmosphere 
you can hear uh, the technical teams and all that stuff, but there were football matches happening and it was happening in a safe environment. And once that was put in motion, everything else just flowed. You know, the Premier League voted for a re return to phase one training. Then they followed it up by contact training. And I, I really think the Bundesliga was pivotal because a lot of players have admitted that they sat and watched to see what is it like. They were looking for body language. They were looking at the quality of the matches, the intensity. They were, you know, checking out if there were any muscle injuries and what the regularity of that was. And they were speaking to their mates who play in the Bundesliga, you know, from the national teams and stuff to see if they were apprehensive, if they felt it was quite natural, even though it was different. And so for me, that was the big sort of area where things switched. Tony, welcome to the show once more. Um, this kind of three-month break in the middle of a scene in, season is unprecedented in the modern era of the game. Um, it'll be ideal for some, it won't be ideal for others. Um, could you talk to us about, I suppose, the potential benefits that clubs and indeed players might see as a result of this break? Yeah, well, I think one of the things is that this has been the longest break that a lot of players have had for, uh, you know, for it in the career, and it's allowed a lot of people to get healthy. For example, Harry Kane, who had the season gone on as normal, would have been brought back quickly to play for Tottenham and then probably gone the Euros. Who knows what damage it would have done to him long term. So he's been able to get fit. Uh, so there's that. Also, the, the lack of the crowds changes the whole dynamic, as we've seen with the Bundesliga, for home advantage. So it's essentially, you know, the away teams are not going to be on the receiving end of decisions which the referees be, have been coloured by the crowds. So it's, in many ways, it, it evens things up considerably. I mean, no one can blame anyone else now. It's, uh, it's down to the squad and the players, and there's no excuses. So, so in that sense, it, you know, it's, it's great and, um, and there's not a lot of arguments right across the division, division you know, and say we're, we're, we've got more of a disadvantage than others. Um, on the other hand, you know, the, the lack of atmosphere, we all wish it wouldn't happen. But, you know, there's bigger things going on and we all wish coronavirus wouldn't have happened. So it's good to see them back and it's good to see them playing. It's a start and we're having back to the normalisation of the game. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, if we cast our minds back to March, which seems like a completely different world, which in part because it is, or certainly because it was, um, we were kind of on the verge of crowning Liverpool, who were all set to end their 30-year league title drought. Coronavirus, coronavirus intervened. Um, Melissa, talk to us about the Liverpool point of view with regards to kind of how Jurgen Klopp has been dealing with, with lockdown. And I suppose the mood with the squad in general, because you know, there's an argument to say that this might make it all that more sweeter, given maybe a month ago there was a threat that it might not happen at all. It might have been wrestled away from them. Yeah, I think initially there was obviously the sense of, goodness gracious, we've gone 25 points clear and suddenly there's the suspension. There's all this uncertainty. Will our efforts be rewarded? Will it be for nothing after 30 years? And that's quite a normal thing, I think. But the bigger perspective at the time was what on earth is going on in the world? Because the pandemic was at, at that stage um, quite scary and new. And you were learning about, you know, needing to social distance and needing to stay isolated in your homes, not really seeing family members. And while people were adjusting to the professional elements of it. They were also dealing with sort of the personal adjustment as, you know, every one of us were. I think very quickly it became obvious that Liverpool were determined to write their own narrative over what's happening. There will be obviously a lot of external voices and we'll all have opinions uh, about the season and whether it's, you know, just a continuation or whether it's different now and as such needs some sort of asterisk or whatever. But Liverpool were determined that it's their story to tell and only they decide what this title will mean for them, uh, what overcoming a pandemic to win it will mean for them. And I think we've seen from the very first 
clips we were getting of the squad, their Zoom yoga sessions and stuff, there seemed to be very high spirits. And there might actually be a sense of, okay, we're not going to win it, um, you know, with fans in the stadium this season, which means we have to go again and try next season to do it. So we get that experience, really. Dimitar, you've won Premier League titles, um, you know, and you're quite a chilled, chill guy. You're quite laid back. Um, but I think even you would have been nervous if, you know, in the midst of about to pick up that title, suddenly the game was called to a halt and you're kind of wondering if you are going to get that medal. How would you have reacted in that situation? Well, probably the same as the Liverpool players uh, reacting. Uh, you start asking questions, you know, are, gonna take, are they going to take the title away from us? Because in the end, for sure, they're going to be probably uh, Premier League champions. And honestly, yes, the factor of the fans not being at the stadium when they're going to leave the title, it's something, you know, to think about. But in the end, it's still Premier League title. You know, that's the most important thing. And they'll be happy about it. And they'll be, uh, they'll deserve that for sure. As, as much as it's painful to say it, coming from ex-Man United player, they deserve <laughs> it. They, they, used to, they, they, they play the season. Now I'm going to be curious to see how they're going to start because uh, it's difficult. The first game is so important coming from as long as break as this. And I'm going to be curious to see if they're going to be flying again all over the pitch. You know, that, that for me, it's, it's really important to see how Jurgen Klopp have prepare the team after that break and if they're going to keep the same tempo they were doing the in the in, in the games before uh, and in the end as I said you know lifting the trophy fans no fans is still a Premier League title you mentioned lifting the trophy there we've got a question from Mason what was your favorite moment playing for Manchester United uh, well I, I need to say it, uh, that the overall experience that the, the, the me coming from a small country is Bulgaria, uh, climbing my ladder of success slowly but surely, step by step, uh, and reaching my personal top, my personal success in the face of uh, Manchester United, and achieving that dream of mine to playing with, with the best players possible and to test myself and in the process score goals, winning trophies. You know, that overall feeling was was, uh, was unbelievable. Tony, just to move back to Liverpool, um, you've written, you know, so much about how intrinsically the club is linked with the city. So it's kind of as a city that has waited so long for this kind of moment, how will, I suppose, you know, let's kind of park coronavirus for a moment here. What does it mean to Liverpool, the city, to be on the cusp of something so great once more? Well, I mean, uh, the, the club's always been a flag bearer for the city, for the region, and for people who find they're at the margins of British society. So it's politicised as well as just a, a football game. And so it means an awful lot. It's Scousers saying, no matter what you think about us, we... You know, we have the best team. And and one of the interesting things, and uh, Dimitar was talking about is when the, when the team come back, Jürgen Klopp's team, I've never seen a side, and I've seen a lot of Liverpool teams over the years, I've never seen a side that feeds off the crowd and vice versa, quite like this team. And a lot of the tempo is... Um, it, it seems to come from the crowd on the you know the, the the big games and the pace picks up. You think this team can't play any quicker, they can't go any stronger, and they do when the crowd get going. So that'll be part part of the dynamic, but it means a, a, a huge amount to the city. And I think when the time comes that the lockdown's completely gone and it's time to celebrate, there will be a massive celebration whenever that happens. And that might be in the middle of next season, and people will go. Those scouts are weird. Why are they celebrating something that's gone so <laughs> They'll be celebrating because it's so important to the identity of the city and to the self sense of self of the city. And it'll be, um, and it'll, it, it's an amazing thing to have happened. And it might have been delayed, but it's worth waiting for. I don't want to use the word tarnished, but you know, not being able to go to Anfield, not being able to celebrate in a parade because, you know, you only had to look to last season in the scenes when they brought back the Champions League. Of, of, of really, that's, I think, that's certainly someone from the outside of Liverpool, that's when you get a true sense of, of just how much it means 
to everyone there. Does that take anything at all away? Not being able to have that? No, no. It's competition. You know what? You know why it is tarnished? It's because everyone else has put no pressure on them. Everyone else has been rubbish. There should be an asterisk. Which <laughs> they, when Liverpool would have won the league in the first week in March, you know, the, the rest years have been awful. Yeah, that's the asterisk. Look, we, we, if you look back to, say, 1989, when Hillsborough happened, and obviously Liverpool didn't play for a number of weeks and then come back and played, I think it was eight games in 24 days. You know, it was... Um, and no one talks about Arsenal's title being tarnished. You know why? Because it wasn't. You play in the conditions that are in front here. And Liverpool, you know, committed themselves when they come back to play. And I think that is really the comparison. We've had an unprecedented situation like we had in 1989. And it has interrupted football. I mean, it was only in a, in a small way for Liverpool in 1989, but in a bigger way for everyone. And when you come back, you continue. Nothing's tarnished. You know what? This is as good as any title. And especially given the gap before coronavirus hit, I don't think anyone can even... If, if you look at Liverpool's title this year and say it's tarnished, you're delusional. Well, very well said. I'm, I'm definitely not one to argue with you at all, Tony. Um, Miguel... Neutral venues came up as a contentious issue during the Talk Project restart. And perhaps unfairly, Liverpool and specifically Anfield and I suppose Everton Goodison were, for some reason, big parts of that. Um, do you think the right call has been made then to, I suppose, kind of throw that out completely in terms of a discussion and carry on as they have been or as they're going to? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, actually, this is one of those issues that I wasn't too strong on because... I think we interviewed Joshua Kimmich at Bayern Munich two weeks ago, and he basically said when they played Dortmund uh, in the big title decider that Bayern won, it was at Dortmund Stadium, and he felt it was actually a disadvantage to Dortmund to play at home because usually they have the expectation of walking out in front of that wall of fans, all the excitement. And I think there's an interesting, almost philosophical point here to what all the guys have been talking about. Where I mean, whatever about Liverpool's title tarnished or caveats or any of the rest of it, the, the reality is that title was won at Christmas. So that was always going to be the case. They're justifiable champions there. And I think that's how it'll always be remembered, that perfect run. But the rest of the seasons, obviously, so much else is so tight. And there is almost a question of how real this is. I mean, in some way, although, it's, although the crisis has been the great lever in terms of, leveler in terms of conditions, so say Jose Mourinho suddenly has a fit Harry Kane and a fit son, um, it, it's, it's also it will always offer the caveat. If, if a manager fails to reach his objective, like qualifying for the Champions League or, or, or getting relegated, they'll always be able to say, well, it was that freak season. There are always those caveats. And it does touch on something that Hugo Lloris said to us. We, we had an interview with him last week and he was talking about how a crowd does tangibly influence the game because it gives you something extra. It actually has an effect at key moments. And even as Tony referenced there as regards to the pace of the Liverpool team. And I'd, I'd be curious as to what uh, Dimitar thinks on this or what his opinion is. I mean, how much the actual crowd tangibly changes what you do? Do you feel extra? Or, um, or even are, would you say there are some players as well who might come out of their shell a little bit? We're maybe stronger in training. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly on point. Exactly on point. Uh, there is sometimes difference when you play at home and away because there are players who can be good at training, but then at the games, there's nowhere to be seen. You know, and that's really interesting factor when you play at, at uh, for example, when you play at the Liverpool Stadium. I used to play against Liverpool. So it's intimidating as hell, for sure. You know, so if you're not really sure in your ability to calm yourself, to know what you can do with the ball when the ball is in your feet, and you're always thinking about the mistake, you're going to do more and more mistake. But this is the same when you play at home. If you, again, you're not sure about yourself and you do one or two mistakes, bad pass, missed opportunity, and then the fans start to boo a little bit, then you're gone. Your confidence is gone. And if you're not strong enough mentally, then you're going to have a bad game for sure. And when the fans are not there, some players who think like this, as you said, they can come out of their shadow. They'll be more free because they'll be thinking, well, if I do a bad pass, nobody there to boo me. So nothing to lose. I have more confidence to look for the ball. Uh, and it's really a tricky situation and it's really interesting and I always speak with friends about this because sometimes the fans can be a factor of you winning a game 
but sometimes can, the opposite can happen. You can have a bad game purely because impatience of the fans sometimes, bad game, bad day, problem in your family, but then you're thinking about this in the game and you cannot focus, but nobody care about that. You know, you're just there to perform. And if you're not strong here, here, really strong and believe in yourself, you're going to have a problem. Everybody been there, myself and every other top player have days like this. Just as you say that, one game I'm immediately thinking of is when you played for Manchester United in 2009, we're 2-0 down to Tottenham Hotspur and Carrick got, got fell for a penalty and something immediately changed in the game. And I felt like from that moment, almost in response to the crowd as much as anything, Tottenham just fell away and it, it ended up 5-2. I mean, is that... Is that, is that kind of the example you're talking about, or it is? It is, but it, it's uh, then you're thinking to yourself, was that gonna happen if the fans were not there? Are we gonna get the same result? Or the the factor of the fans is really important because I remember that game, two nil down and then five two. You know, we 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 destroyed them after after the break, but during the break at halftime. Let me tell you a funny story. You're expecting Sir Alex to yell at you. So we are going down to the tunnel. Everybody's like this, sitting in the dressing room. And he comes in and he did nothing. He just calm and relax. And like, guys, we just need to score one goal as soon as possible. And then we'll score more and we're going to win. You know? And that that is the really, how do you say, uh, you need to know how to speak to your players. So we were expecting a hairdryer, but we didn't get it. We were just, guys, believe in yourself, go out there, score one goal, and then you're going to score more, you know? And the fans come into the play as well, because when they sense this thing, they can lift you even more. Well, we're going to get a replay of that game on Friday, which will play a part in the the battle for the top four as well. And I suppose that's where we need to look to, because... The title is pretty much decided. Betfair haven't actually put up a, a market for next season's winner, but if they did, they say that Liverpool would be the favourites at seven to two, which probably isn't too surprising given how they've gone so far. Um, Dimitar, before I kind of talk to you about this Manchester United and Spurs game coming up on the weekend, I suppose I should give people the odds. Man City obviously locked in for a top four, but Leicester one point two eight, which is two to seven. Chelsea one point seven, which is five to seven. United there a bit further back at 2.72, which is 7-4. Wolves, 8.4, 15-2. 15-2. 15-2. 15-2. Sheffield United, quite a juicy 17 there. And Arsenal at 20. Now, Dimitar, you spoke to Miguel last week about United Spurs and you said you couldn't pick someone to win or someone you'd prefer to win because it'd be like choosing between a loved one. I'm not going to take the hint. I'm going to ask you again firmly what's going to happen on Friday and... Do you reckon you know one of those two teams can break into that top four? Oh, for sure, the United is in better position to break into the top four, and that's why I said if they win that game, they're going to put more pressure on Chelsea, who are playing the day after. And uh, if they do it, uh, as I tell you, I've been in in that position where you watch your rival playing the day before you, and you are like lose, 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 lose because you're going to be good for you, you know. But if they win, it's more pressure on you to perform the next day and win it as well. Uh, but as I tell you before, these are the two teams that um, on my heart, I support them. And that game is really important for both of them, even though Spurs are seven points behind. And it's going to be difficult for them to climb up and uh, you know fight for that uh, top four place. But why not? You know They reached the Champions League final where nobody paid them attention. So it's possible. It's possible, but... Uh, don't don't make me give a prediction or something like that. You know, I'm going to watch. <laughs> I'm going to enjoy. Uh, I'm going to like to see good football, although it's like a friendly game. Believe me, I've played against empty stadium. You can hear everything. Uh, sometimes you need to be really, again, strong and to have personal motivation to perform because it is important game. But sometimes it's not happening. So I'll be watching for sure to see how they're going to approach that game and if they can stay fit and no injuries as possible. Absolutely. Um, I realise I said the top four there, but Miguel, Manchester City's legal case is hanging over their heads and could open the door for fifth as well. Could you give us a, a brief update on that, if you can be brief at all on, on the subject as, 
as uh, complex as that? You know, kind of where are we at the moment and kind of how much is that going to affect how City are when they come back and in particular Pep Guardiola? Well, the cast case is uh, concluded last week. Oh, well, the proceedings concluded. We probably won't have the outcome until July. Um, there hasn't been much leaked out of it yet. Um, I think the mood going into it was the ban was up, uh, would be upheld, but we have to we have to wait and see. Uh, as regards the actual team, from everything you hear, uh, and this is something actually Guardiola has been quite good at, in that whatever about the rights and wrongs of the actual situation. Guardiola has used it to create one of these classic siege mentalities. I think it does explain their form in Europe. But even, even beyond that, I, I was talking to someone the other day uh, involved in the club, and he said, because of the way this break has happened and what, what it'll do for fitness, and even as we talk about Liverpool because their energy, he said he thinks the break will favour A, teams with high technical quality, and B, managers with a lot of tactical ideas, which both City have in abundance. Um, and I, so, uh, from what I've heard and what you, you, you think, I actually expect City to hit the ground running and maybe be very impressive. I and mean, they've been like this before after breaks, it's just a combination of all those things. Uh, but of course, if this if this ban is upheld and the Champions League places go up to fifth, if you look at that table now, it actually opens up the entire top half to, to potential Champions League plays. And so, really big questions there like, I mean, whatever about City and the quality of City, there's the the kind of the, the new guard of Leicester Wolves and Sheffield United, and then there's also this group of new managers. And like a big question here because they obviously their careers at the top level have been so short. We don't actually know how good Frank Lampard, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, or Mikel Arteta are, and we're going to start to have the evidence now. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, another new manager, Frank Lampard at Chelsea. Melissa, of, of all the teams that have had a, a good lockdown, Chelsea's workings and dealings in terms of signing Hakim Ziyech obviously sorted before we kind of went into lockdown but you know recently beating Liverpool to Timo Werner as well kind of assuming they do make that top four they've kind of got a best of the rest of the vibe about them anyway but they kind of look like they're already kind of rolling into next year as contenders to Liverpool and City. They're quite an exciting team quite a progressive team and you're always interested to watch them just like Miguel said because you're trying to get a sense of what Frank Lampard is trying to do there. I do think, however, they're still a work in progress and it's going to take a while for them to build any sort of consistency, even as they add really good young players with high ceilings, but that those players have to grow together over a period of time before they get to the level of, you know, being regular title challenges or even a regular, you know, Champions League team that, the rest of Europe is apprehensive about and nervous about. And that process is never easy and it's never, you know, straightforward or, or linear. And we saw it with Liverpool as well. The reason Liverpool are where they are now, apart from adding Virgil van Dijk and, and Alisson into the mix, is because the rest of that squad, Firmino, Sadio Mane and stuff, have grown together and had shared experiences together, disappointments, failures that they then go and learn from. So I think, like I said, I'm really excited by what Chelsea are doing, but I think because of the age of that squad and a lot of the responsibility on that squad falls to the younger players like Tammy Abraham and Mason Mount, I think we can't put too much pressure on them. Although if they keep spending, I suppose the expectation will be that they have to be in that top four regularly. Well, a, a team that were putting pressure on um, Liverpool and City this year were Leicester City. Um, they were kind of one of the stories of the season up until Christmas, and then they kind of fell away a little bit. And I, I suppose, like they say, at the you know at half time when a team is kind of really rallying against it or up against it come that 40 minute mark I feel like this break if ever there was a good time for a break it certainly felt like a good time for Leicester um Tony did you get the sense that they were running out of a bit of puff I think we all got a bit excited that they might kind of do something miraculous once more but um yeah they kind of just uh, lost the their head of uh what well, lost a bit of speed at the end there yeah, they're just a little bit short of quality, a little bit short of in the squad. And so it was always going to happen. And, I mean, this is a, a good test now for Brendan Rodgers because uh, he's um, 
certainly he believes that he's a great tactical coach and he'll come back in, in this situation and they'll be fresher than they, than they were when the when the season was curtailed. So I think they'll they'll come back and they'll do well. Uh, I think for them to make a lasting impression and to cement a top four place, I think they'd have to bring in a couple of players, certainly two or three. And in this environment, I don't see that really happening in the not too distant future. And surely the likes of United, you know, Tottenham, even Arsenal, have got to get their act together at some point. At some point. I mean, you know, it's uh, so you, you you would think, I mean, I think that, you know, obviously Leicester uh, in a great position for the Champions League for next season. So they will have, but what sort of Champions League are we going to see next season? That's the problem. I mean, when we're talking about the Man City uh, situation, I was speaking to someone who was saying this might be a good time to get a ban if you're City, because next season's Champions League might well be, and the phrase he used was a Mickey Mouse Champions League. We don't know what we're getting. So, so there's good sides and there's bad sides. If, if City do get uh, the ban upheld, which I still suspect they will, it will open it up for a lot of people. But they won't be going into a Champions League as we've come to know, and I'm not sure I'd say love it, but come to know and understand it with, uh, with it being so valuable and, uh, and being a, a sort of launching pad for you know, a, a prolonged spell in in the, in, you know, your elite competition. So, yeah, I think that, that there's a lot of questions to answer. But the first thing you've got to do, if you're Brendan Rodgers, is get them in next season's Champions League. And I think he will. Of, I suppose the, the more pressing matters to decide in the Premier League, we obviously go to the foot of the table. Um, Miguel, we touched on it earlier that, you know, the negotiations around Project Restart, they seem to be... I suppose the most, uh, should we say colourful? Let's be diplomatic and say colourful. Uh, when it surrounded the teams that were in danger of relegation, obviously they had more to lose than anyone. Um, can you talk us through, I suppose, firstly, how they started to get talked around? Uh, again, it really did come down to that FA announcement at the start of that meeting. It, it wasn't really talking around. They're basically told that if, if this season doesn't finish, three of you are getting relegated. Uh, and and that's what just ultimately clarified things. I mean, before that, there'd been so much toing and froing and pointing to all sorts of conditions. And I thought you would have a, a certain sympathy there because there were questions about. I mean, there, there were some valid criticisms, but I think it, it was it's pointed that we only saw these debates in the Premier League. In every other league in Europe, really, it went much easier. And I think part of that is because maybe I mean that that brings up bigger debates about what the Premier League is. You know, it, it, there was one point where it looked like it was a league that uh, the teams wanted to stay in so much because it was worth so much money that they're willing to sacrifice not playing it at all. You know, it, it kind of reached an absurd point. Um, but yeah, I mean, after all that, it could be it could be the case that the main reason we're watching by the end of the season is that relegation battle that some of them were so desperate to avoid. And even within that, I think there's, I mean, we just saw the table there, but whatever about the split clubs. There's a split of styles because obviously most of those teams at the bottom are, um, are now play kind of a more expansive game like Bournemouth, like Norwich in particular, like Brighton. And on the other side, you've got teams who are kind of maybe more traditionally dig in like uh, Watford under Pearson, who obviously changed manager and West Ham. And, and again, I mean, Dimitar played for a Fulham team that I suppose were always mid table. And it was always that debate about, you know what, how they could reach the next level, and one of them in Brighton. One of the reasons they they pointed Potter at the expense of Chris Uton because they wanted to reach the next level and play a different style. And I, I would wonder about in the modern Premier League and how Dimitar finds it. I mean, what what football is more suitable for that for that that fight? Being able to play your way out or fight your way out? Well, it depends on the situation you are. I, I see Norwich, for example, bottom of the table, Aston Villa as well. And now every point is priceless. I mean, how do you achieve that? Uh, because some games you want to play, but if you don't have the quality to play, then you need to fight for it. And I mean, fight for it dirty if you want, you know, games like this, when you, when you fight for the points and because of the survival and the survival brings more money to your club, as you were talking before, you know, they, they don't want to get relegated. And in the end, it's, it is difficult position, but the points are most important for the team on the bottom of the table. And seeing some of the names of these teams, uh, it brings 
every time I'm like, what are the teams doing down there? I mean, Aston Villa, West Ham, close to bottom of the table, two English clubs with so much tradition in them. So def definitely something is not doing right there. So they need to improve. And you mentioned Fulham when I used to play there. I've always been middle of the table, but I always sense they can achieve more and do more. But why they didn't, I never find an answer to that. And it's always, it's always curious to me because uh, you have the means, uh, you have good people working for you and you still didn't achieve that push so you can develop and, 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 and get higher in the table, you know? And I still, to this day, wonder about stuff like this and seeing where Aston Villa is, for example, and West Ham, I mean, I'm like, come on, you can do better than that, for sure. I feel like you could say the same about Bournemouth as well. Bournemouth are a team with a, you know, a good young manager that have, you know, they've got a good setup behind them, but they've also got a team of talented players as well. M Melissa, you interviewed, you've interviewed Eddie Howe in the past and I've, I've never seen him under this kind of pressure before as he's had in this campaign. Can you see a way out for him and Bournemouth or do you think this is after giving us so many, well, giving us good years in the Premier League, do you think we're... What, we're do you wonder if we'll see them next year? This coronavirus suspension might actually have given them some respite because their injury list at one point was absolutely staggering. I think they had 11 players in the treatment room. And when you've already got such a small squad and your, you know, your resources aren't as extensive as most of the teams that you're competing against, that does make things hugely difficult. You know, David Brooks, who was one of their star performers, has been on the sidelines for ages, but now has been, you know, has looked good in training, um, will be involved in the season when it returns. So that's quite exciting for them. I do think Bournemouth, because they have such a clear identity and stuff, that if they can deal with this, with the new normal, that they are slightly at, a, at an advantage. Um, Dimitar mentioned that one of the big things about, you know, football coming back is you have to now adjust. It's, it's, you're not going back to the football you know, you're dealing with you no know, fans, you're dealing with the, where there's so much focus on the technical elements of the game because there is no other distraction, where you do have to be so um, tactically sound where you are conscious of greater injuries and stuff because you basically had an off season and then no proper pre-season to get ready for these games. There is so much on the line, especially as we say at the bottom of the table. So if they can adjust to that and, and ultimately all throughout the table, the teams who can get a better, better handle of that and usually those are the teams that are uh, quite coherent quite set in in what they're doing um, and can do that sort of automatically whether there is crowd noise no crowd noise and all of that stuff so you'd back Eddie Howe in in that type of situation but on the the previous point that we were making Dimitar do you feel that maybe the reason clubs don't sort of go on to succeed even though they've got massive histories and stuff is they're so focused on now so, you know, it's all about the next game, the next result, um, who's the, the sort of flashy manager, that there's no long-term, okay, here's our five-year project that we're working towards, and it's, it's so short-term football. Well, if that's the case, then it's unfortunate for them because, and it's surprising to me because if your team of, of Aston Villa or, or West Ham, you should have this plan for five, ten years ahead of time, isn't it? It, it must be a normal thing to have, not thinking about game to game and, and uh, as you may say, flashy manager or, or that quick success. You should build from the ground up as they've done in the past. But what is happening now, we don't see that anymore. And I'm keeping mentioning Aston Villa or West Ham because I used to play against this team. I, I've been there, friends of mine used to play there, and the, the surprise for me has come exactly from what you mentioned. There is no plans for the future. It's just now. We are, we are, we are short-sighted and we don't look past one year maybe or the next season so we can save ourselves. 
but this is not for me or for you probably to, to take decision about. We can speak about it, but in the end, these clubs, they need to take hands, uh, measure in their own hands and try to, you know, to bring glory to, to, their, to their clubs. But at the moment, I completely agree with you. Uh, unfortunately, some of them don't have plan beyond finishing the season or, or, or even just the next season, which is for me, big, big surprise. And you see the result, bottom of the table. Dimitar, I feel like we've got to ask you this question now that you mentioned it, but have you ever thought about becoming a manager? Not something that interests you? Well, I, I said it many times before, we football players, uh, we all think that we can be great managers, you know. We all think that because purely because we play football all our lives and we think we know everything. But let me tell you something. I've done my uh, coaching badges A license. I don't know anything. Trust me. <laughs> uh, you there and they are talking to you with completely different words and, and, and way of seeing football. And you're sitting there and you're like, you don't know anything, Burps. You don't know anything. And I have, I have it on my mind. But of course, uh, at some point, I need to be prepared for it, take my pro license, which hopefully, hopefully we end of the, of the year if the situation allows it. And as I said, uh, until you tried it, you will never know. Uh, even if people are telling you it's a lot of stress, which it is, a lot of stress you can see by the hair of the managers. You see some manager with brown hair, six months or one year later, white hair, and you know it's a lot of stress. He thinks about everything, but I have it in my mind. So down the road, we'll see. Just on that, Dimitar, actually. I mean, you, you, you were a player that was obviously famous for your touch and what you could do with a ball. If you were a manager or a coach, would you get frustrated if players weren't able to match that level? Or how, how would you handle that? I know it's been said about some great players in the past that they, 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 they used to struggle with, with players who weren't as good as them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I heard the same stories because we, we talk, we speak, and that's that's a big problem because uh, I heard, I, so honestly, I heard so funny stories about why you cannot do that, give me the ball. And then he takes the ball and he's like, bam, he's doing it, no, no pressure and anything at all. And that's not the right way probably to do it. Uh, and then you have to be really clever. You need to know how to speak with each and everybody individually because we're all different. Uh, everybody uh, is motivated by different things. And that's why I said many times, uh, Sir Alex knew how to speak with each and everybody individually. You know, maybe uh, you go to some, someone, you slap him in the back of the head because you're going to react. He's going to react positively on that. Then you go to someone else and you give him a hug because you know that he's more sensitive. So you try to do these kind of things and to try motivate your players. And it's going to be difficult, but I am preparing slowly because I have friends who are coaches. I go with them from time to time learning. Before that coronavirus thing, I was traveling a lot, going to my ex-clubs to, to check how they're training, new stuff, new things, trying to upgrade. And as I said, when the moment comes, uh, I don't know anything now, but I'm learning. Dimitar, will it be weird to assess the game in terms of a group, in terms of like 25, 30 players? Because when you're playing the game, you're thinking about it from your perspective and, and your view. But now you've got to step outside that and think about every single person and a coaching staff and your sporting director, etc. Everything, everything, everything. You, uh, the manager is basically a father, a brother, a friend to, to the players. But in the end, uh, the players need to know that he's the manager. He's taking all the decisions. And you're correct. When I was a player, I was thinking from only from my perspective. Boss, why am I not playing? Why? You know? And then he needs to explain to me that it's not about me, but it's about the team in general. And you still don't understand. I still didn't understand it because I was thinking about me uh, and as, as every, every other player in my, in my place. But when you're a manager, now when I'm back here, from my perspective, studying, taking my license, as I said in the beginning, I don't know anything. Now you start to open your mind to different things and how you should see the football through the eyes of a manager because it's honestly, it's, it's completely different.
Just before we move well, away from... Would, would, would you like to have managed yourself? <laughs> well, if I'm, if I'm going to be manager, for sure I'm going to have someone like me. 100%. Maybe worse than me. You know, <laughs> that would be that would be a challenge, a great challenge, which I'll be cherish because you want challenging like this to test yourself, to know if you can man, uh, how do you say, uh, manage players mm -hmm. like this. Because I have teammates who have been more difficult than myself uh, and really, really difficult to manage. And it's curious to watch from behind and outside to, to see how the manager is handled them. And that's why I was I was lucky to be in United to, to see one of the greatest managers, how he was handling situations like this. Because trust me, we did used to have a lot of tense situation where you need to know how to handle the players. When was Ferguson angriest with you and why? <laughs> Honestly, never. <laughs> people people, people was asking me about this. Did you get the hair dryer? Did you, did you get that and that? And I'm like... Guys, probably I was lucky because I remember clearly when we were talking about with some of the players and they were like burps, you are lucky now in a way that, that Ferguson is is more mellow. Is that the word? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Mellow. Uh, because back in the days, trust me, you didn't want to be here when we were playing, <laughs> honestly. I could listen to this all night, actually, but Tom's giving me the hurry up, our producer. So I better rattle through these relegation odds. Uh, Norwich and Villa are obviously two favourites to go down out of the three. Norwich at 1.12, Villa at 1.55. Bournemouth are at evens, or slightly lower, 1.98. And then you've got West Ham and Watford, both 12 to 5. Now, that seems to be where the most intrigue is. Brighton, having started well and falling away, are now 3.65. Newcastle, 17, and Southampton, 42. We've also got the kind of the small, well, the small matter of a Champions League and FA Cup. Um, now, as it stands, the Champions League is going to be concluded later in the summer with discussions ongoing over potentially one city to host the quarterfinals, semis and the final. Dimitar, you've played in Champions League's finals. You've seen how the Bundesliga has been going. Um, specifically with the Bundesliga, Bayern Munich are, are flying. How do you think they might fare any potential restart for the European Cup? Well, uh, I, I think some of you guys, I think Miguel mentioned it before, that now when the, the season uh, restarting, the one team that's going to be more beneficial and more ready is probably the teams with the more quality in it because the quality players need more time, uh, need less time to start going purely because they have more quality. You know, they're relying on, on their quality. You know, and the teams with less quality maybe will take more time to do it. Bayern Munich, prime example. You know, I watched them. Uh, they at game, some games they didn't play 100%, which is normal now that when they're starting, but still getting the three points. One nil, two one. I think the last game against uh, Munich Gladbach in the last minute ago. You know, because they know they have so much quality, they they'll get out of trouble in this situation like this. Lewandowski. He, he, it looks like he didn't stop. I mean, he, he looks stronger, faster, and he's scoring for fun. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. And because he has so much quality, him and, and the team, Bayern Munich is with no competition in the Bundesliga. In the Champions League, maybe they have a bit more of advantage because the Bundesliga starts earlier than any other leagues. So that maybe give them a match. But not only that, they play, in my opinion, they play great football. Speaking of a head start, um, I think we closed off football with RB Leipzig doing a pretty comprehensive number on Tottenham Hotspur. Melissa, you've spoken to Julian Nagelsmann at length over the last couple of years and RB Leipzig seemed to me to be a team to, to be wary of. They're taking maybe a little bit of time to get back into the swing of things with the Bundesliga, but um, certainly for the Champions League, they, well, you know, they look like they can pick up where they left off. Yeah, I think anyone who expected Spurs to be better than RB Leipzig, especially considering the context of that of the two teams when they faced each other, was probably not watching enough Bundesliga or not uh, fully realizing the talent in that Leipzig squad and the way they play. Um, the thing is, like what I was saying earlier with Chelsea and Frank Lampard, when you are trying to develop a very young enterprising team there's always highs and lows in in the process and I think they're experiencing that now they're not nearly 
consistent enough. And that was one of the things Nagelsmann was saying to me that it was great when I spoke to him, they were second in the table. They had actually just dropped into second. And he was saying he cannot seriously think of the Leipzig team as they are as title challengers. He said they needed more experience together and that they need to probably reassess their policy of only signing players that are 23 years and below because you need some people that have already experienced winning trophies in order to get over the line. Tony, when we um, we left the Champions League, Man City had just completed one half of the job against Real Madrid, a fairly comprehensive 2-1 win at the Bernabeu, if there is such a thing. Um, do you see potential cha- Champions League winners there? It's been the, the, the toughest knock that they found to crack, but something about that performance struck me personally as, as you know, a step in, an important step in the right direction for them. Yeah, they've got all the technical quality and they're just so brilliant going forward. I mean, the, the problem for them is at the back and when you get to the highest level, when when they sort of get to the semi-finals and the game becomes really distilled with the best clubs, they'll exploit any weakness at the back. So that's what City's problem. If they can, uh, you know, they can outscore most teams, but, you know, th- this is the danger, uh, danger time for them. But I think they, they you know, they have very, very good chance of winning this competition. And, you know, they, they may need to with this ban coming up. Um, and, I mean, for me, I'd like Atalanta to win it. I can't see it happening. <laughs> but, you know, that, that's where, you know, the, the, the COVID biological bomb was at the game against Valencia in the San Siro. And it, it seemed to me to be some sort of poetic justice if they went on to win it. But I don't think, um, I, I think City are going to go very, very close. One thing on that, if this, is, this this might be the most freakish Champions League, and obviously it's probably going to be a new format. We probably have a kind of almost World Cup style knockout in um, in Lisbon or maybe maybe Madrid over two weeks in August. But from a pure performance perspective, it could actually be the best because obviously, I mean, most of the Champions League last stages happen at the end of the season. Players are often tired. There's so much accumulated fatigue. Managers obviously try and condition them for that. Mm. Whereas now, this Champions League could actually happen after players have had about a month, two months of football. So they could well be in the perfect condition. And it's one of the things I've been thinking when we've watched all the clubs come back, like Bayern Munich, as Dimitar said, how good they've been. Barcelona impressed me on, on Saturday and Messi in particular impressed me. And I, maybe we'll have all these great clubs at absolutely top level just as that Champions League comes back. And which maybe hopefully will give a quite a nice close who has obviously been an awful situation. Tony, Miguel, sorry, Tony, I'm with you on that one. I would like Atalanta to win it. <laughs> That's two, uh, two votes for the underdog. I'm going to assume that we'd all like Atalanta to win it, actually. Well, I'd like Atletico, I think. Yeah. <laughs> but there's well, Miguel, while you're there, you know, the FA Cup, um, that's still to be concluded as well. City are currently evens for that. United, Manchester United at 8.6. Chelsea at 8.8. Sheffield United a bit further out at 26. Newcastle still in it at 30. And Norwich bottom of the table at 44. I feel like, you know, every time we talk about the FA Cup, someone's writing that piece of, or, you know, has it lost its magic, blah, blah, blah. But having to be so condensed in how it's concluding now, do you think that'll add a little bit more to it? You know, we talked about things feeling a bit hollow, but I think giving teams, you know, really concentrated, mm. I suppose, environment to go for a uh, go for a trophy, it seems like it might um, add a bit of spice to this kind of restart. It did, it did feel about a month ago when there was so much debate about coming back and the potential hollowness of um, these games in empty stadiums, that maybe that might actually suit the FA Cup because it's straight knockout. So that sudden that aspect adds an intensity all of its own, kind of in a different way to a league game. So it, might, so it might actually suit the FA Cup. The one thing I'm slightly disappointed by, I would have preferred if they had a, had the FA Cup in a in this kind of blitz situation where it's kind of three game, or you know, the quarterfinals, the semifinals, and the finals all in the space of a week. So then it kind of again, it's like a, it's like a World Cup. I think that that would have been maybe a bit more entertaining and made the, the FA Cup more of its own event. But yeah, I think it does actually lend itself to the situation better than a league. Um, and of course, when we talk about Manchester City situation, and obviously one of the reasons Liverpool have been such runaway champions is because City, who kept pace with them and beat them last season, have fallen away. 
and yet they can still have one of their best ever seasons at the weirdest time, given the the CAS case, because they could yet win all the knockout trophies, including the Champions League. Well, that seems as good a place as any to end it. Um, that's basically all we've got time for anyway, so there you go. Um, thank you very much for joining us. If you want to hear more about our live events in the future, before anyone else, then click the link in the description, as I mentioned before. That will give you the chance to subscribe to Independent Premium, where we've got a deal where for just £3, you can sign up for the first three months. I've just got to say a huge thank you to Dimitar Barbatov for joining us. Dimitar, it's been an absolute pleasure. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have. I did, so let's do it again at some point. Yes, we're going to hold you to that as well. We'll get that in writing. Um, and thank you, of course, to our own independent team, to Miguel Delaney, Melissa Reddy, and Tony Evans as well. Uh, remember, you can check out the Betfair Exchange and the Sportsbook, all in those links in the description for this. If you're a listener to the plod, Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Acast or wherever you get your podcasts from. Um, Yeah, football's coming back and we're all very excited. So thank you again for joining us. Enjoy the Premier League and we'll see you again next week. Thanks for listening, everybody. Really hope you enjoyed that. Remember, if you want to take part in events like that one and have access to exclusive content, then click the link in the description of this podcast and subscribe to Independent Premium.